Good morning, everyone. We are going to take just a little pause uh, from John. We'll be jumping right back into the book of John next week. Uh, but we're going we're gonna to pause and, and talk about what I believe is one of the greatest gifts in our spiritual arsenal. And I also think it's also one of the most underutilized gifts uh, that we've been given. Uh, if you'll notice, I am wearing a new beaded necklace this morning. And the colors are themed from uh, the colors of uh, uh, Pregnancy and Infant Loss Awareness Month. And so I just want to take a moment and we're going to pray in honor of that month because I've heard so many stories. And I hope that in some way uh, we can be here to uh, acknowledge your experience, to in some way add our validation to your pain, and to be here as a healing presence when there just aren't any words that'll soothe. So let's just take a moment and pray, shall we? Heavenly Father, there are uh, so many in our community that have at some time or another been touched by the reality of this month's awareness. And I just ask God that you would, that you would cover them in your peace. I pray that that beautiful imagery of scripture would be real to them, that they would rest in the shadow of your wings, that they would feel that covering both in the emotional affirmation of the spirit in their hearts, but also through the extension of the arms of the body of Christ. And we thank you, God, that even though this life requires that we sit with questions that do not get answered or questions whose answers do not comfort, that nonetheless our faith is not cerebral and, and, and about ideas, but rather it is a, an acknowledgement of walking life and the walking through life in the presence of God. And even when our questions go unanswered, your presence is enough. And we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. This, uh, in thinking about this month and what it means, uh, which did you guys know that this has been acknowledged since the Reagan administration over 30 years ago? He's the one that uh, pronounced up, uh, the day of infant loss and uh, pregnancy and loss a month, uh, awareness month. But with that, and also uh, on Sunday mornings, I have a great privilege. It's one of the great privileges of my life. I get to gather with the board, which is made up of people that I trust and that I've journeyed with, and we gather together every Sunday morning, and we have a liturgy that we all pray together. Uh, in addition to praying the liturgy, I give some sort of pastoral support uh, report about uh, the needs of our community as I've become aware of them throughout the week. And just a few weeks ago, as I was sharing that report, it just was reminded us, as I was sharing with the elders, is that that particular week, I counted and I sat with three or four different people, and all I did was sit and weep with them. Because there, there, weren't, there weren't words, there weren't answers. And even though I went to school to learn those answers, they do nothing for the pain. And so sometimes it is just being present. And, and in that experience, I've been thinking about this, uh, this gift that we've been given. Now, 
I, I don't want to be misunderstood. And in today's society, boy, it is just easy to speak to one heart and offend another. And I have certainly been aware of how easy that, <laughs> that is to do if you presume to stand up and address a larger crowd. Um, and so I, I am an advocate. I am a mental health advocate. I am full for uh, individuals uh, not only trusting Jesus and pressing into the presence of God, but also, when appropriate, seeking out mental health professionals. They are trained and they are gifted by God to be healers, and, and we should avail ourselves of those opportunities, but not just emotional health, but also our, our good doctors who can help us with brain health. I, I, I would I encourage everyone who's in a prolonged season of struggle to seek both mental and brain health as part of their, their care program. But you know, before these industries were established, tribes of people of faith had rituals and practices that were intended to empower us to walk through transitions, celebrations, and grief. And that there is an ancient wisdom in the acknowledgement of struggle that isn't just an empty religious ritual, but is a means through which our souls slowly start to be put back together. And, and, and our scriptures celebrate and model one of these gifts, which is the gift of lament. One of the things, themes that I, uh, that recurs probably in my convictions and in my talks is this um, idea that I think that there's a challenge in contemporary Christianity in America in that we tend to communicate spirituality with a vague promise of control. And what I mean is we desire to seek spiritual practices because those practices oftentimes are either uh, covertly or overtly communicated that there are guarantees attached to those practices. If we do this, God will do that and the result will be here. And, and so we engage in these practices in part because they carry with them the illusion that we have some control over the other variables or the outcomes in our lives. I do not believe a spirituality of control is what is modeled in scripture. I don't see that modeled in the Psalms. I don't see that modeled in the life of Jesus. And in fact, we're gonna talk about that in a few minutes, but in the life of Jesus, the power of his spirituality is not in control. And in fact, we have various places where Jesus could exert control and he actually refuses to. And instead, what we see modeled in Jesus is a spirituality of surrender. Now, all of us have to go on our own journeys, but one of the questions that would be good for you to sit with and to pray about or to journal about, whatever your thing is, is to ask yourself, am I seeking a spirituality of control or a spirituality of surrender? These questions become of utmost importance, particularly when the outcomes that we thought we were going to control do not turn out to be what we expected them to be. And in spiritualities of control, there is not really healthy mechanisms for acknowledging the failure of our spirituality because, because spiritualities of control place the blame of the failure at the feet of the worshiper. 
And so there's some variation that if you would have just done X, Y, Z more, or if you would have just had more faith when you did X, Y, Z, then probably it would have worked out. And so I'm gonna comfort myself because I'm really uncomfortable because I don't know what to do with your loss and disappointment and I'm scared to death that that could happen to me. Therefore, I need to run and grab a hold of an ideology that will promise me that won't happen to me as long as I just do it better than them. And then I have comfort because then I hold on to my illusion of control. But this illusion I have seen wreck the faith of countless faithful believers. Because under a spirituality of control, we have underdeveloped theologies of suffering. And it is critical that we are thoughtful about the reality of the human condition that includes seasons of suffering. And we either want to take the blame off of God or we just are uncomfortable even bringing that in the presence of God. Because when that happens, not only do we feel out of control, but it feels like God is out of control. And I'm not making a, theologi- a blanket theological statement, but what I have come to learn is this. I don't need God to be in control of all the variables of my life but I need him to be at the center of my life. And making God center rather than the object of control that I manipulate has opened my heart up to a much healthier and less less toxic form of spiritual practice. And and part of that is, is learning that in spiritualities of surrender, we cannot enter into a spirituality of surrender unless we learn how to lament. It's uncomfortable but it is all throughout the scripture. So I wanna talk about lament this morning. I just dumped water all over myself. There's a symbolic baptism or something that's going on here. And really, I do think lament, it feels heavy, but I have found it to be one of the deepest experiences of both peace and even joy. And I think lament is actually pathway to joy. Sorry, it's all dripping down my beard. And since I've already interrupted this, am I the only one that didn't catch the heavy emphasis on brief service in the Thanksgiving announcement? (laughs) Thank you, Linda. (laughs) I feel that was directed toward me personally. (laughs) So, So what is lament? Lament is to, uh, and, and if you don't have the notes, I didn't do a lot of slides because I mainly, I, I wanted this to be a little bit more instructional rather than proclamational this morning. So please kick somebody in the, I mean, kick somebody, knock somebody in the ribs, tell them to go get you notes and they're out there and so you can grab them and follow along. But, so if you follow along with the notes we've handed out. <coughs> <coughs> Another announcement. I took a COVID test and it was negative. And so I didn't, th- I didn't think I needed it, but I thought that someone here might need to hear that this morning. All I need is my sugar-filled Luden's cherry cough drops. <laughs> the joy of the common cold when you were a kid. Remember the box, it would rattle, put it in your pocket like your pack of cigarettes. Mm-mm-mm. Okay, what is lament? Lament simply means to express sorrow, mourning, and here's very, very important, or regret for. 
to express sorrow, mourning, or regret, often demonstratively. In other words, it's often accompanied with expressions of emotion that sometimes might make us comfortable either to experience or be near. But that's what lament is. So why is it important that we even talk about lament? Why is it important that we are aware? So, so this morning, we've already asked the why. All we're asking is three questions. What is it? Why do we do it? And how do we do it? Why a lament? Well, there are seven reasons that I would like for you to consider. Number one, Jesus modeled it both at Gethsemane and on the cross. And that's not the only place he modeled it. Anybody remember the other famous passage where he models lament? Shortest passage in scripture. When his friend died and he saw the pain in his other friends' hearts as they were mourning his loss and were simply told, Jesus wept, which is incredible because it shows there is no contradiction between believing in the power of resurrection and yet lamenting in its need because Jesus is there to perform his greatest miracle thus far and probably ever, the resurrection of Lazarus, and yet he still honors the need to pause and lament because of the sorrow of his friends. And in Gethsemane, we have a lament of Jesus as he wrestles through what he knows to be God's revealed will. And he has that famous moment where he says, if possible, let this cup be passed. And, and the anguish is so intense that his capillaries and his forehead burst and he begins to sweat drops of blood. And through the lament process, he is able to get to, nevertheless, not as I will, but thy will be done. And then on the cross, when he says, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? This is very important because there has been a lot of unfortunate theology attached to that statement. And this is very important with lament. In lament, we, expect, we express things we feel are true even though they are not truth. And that's very important. That is not hypocrisy. That is being honest about the fact there's truth and there's how I feel and those do not always correspond. On a theological level, it is impossible for God to not be somewhere with someone. Omnipresence means God is fully present at all places and at all time. There is no doctrine in the Bible that says the Trinity, which is one, which is celebrated, the oneness of the Trinity is celebrated all the way through the scripture. There is no place where it suggests that that Trinity can be split in two and separated. So what is Jesus doing? If you look at the reference, look at your footnote, go back to the Psalm. He is quoting a Psalm of lament. That psalm begins with, why have you forsaken me? And it ends with an affirmation of the Lord's faithfulness. And so those who heard knew that in quoting that one verse, Jesus is embodying the totality of that psalm. But nonetheless, this is the psalm of lament. He speaks from the words of the cross. So Jesus models a healthy practice of lamentation. Secondly, you should lament because you are human. And the more you deny expressing your pain and disappointment, the more a fake poser self you will project to others. 
We've got to be honest with the fact that we all participate in the human condition, and it doesn't matter what your faith, sexual orientation, ethnicity, uh, whatever your um, uh, your uh, ah, ideas or belief system may be, or your social economic status. None of us escape the fact that we are all in this human condition experience together, and in fact. That is so important that it becomes a key aspect of our faith because our our faith says not only do we experience this together, but our God is not content to stand above it and make pronouncements. Not only do we experience this human connection, uh, uh, a condition, but remember John 1? God enters into this condition with us. He experiences it with us. He doesn't stand above our pain he puts himself into the center of our pain. And so you're human and therefore you should laugh and celebrate and you should mourn and you should lament. These are all the spectrums of reality and we should acknowledge these because we're made in God's image and that somehow means even the shadow emotions are part of a reflection of the gift that God has given us in our emotional makeup. And we don't demonize it. We don't say fear, encourage your enemies. We say, no, we experience both of these at the same time. Mourning and celebration are not enemies. They're just all part of the reality of this human experience. Number three, when we lament, we are at our most honest and vulnerable if we do it well. This is why lament can't be play acting. Lament has to be real. And if we give ourselves to it, we have powerful moments of authenticity. When we lament, we are our most vulnerable and our honest self. And it was unfortunate that some of us, for whatever reason, hide that from one another and maybe even hide that from God. It's critical if we are, deve- if we are going to grow and develop into healthy human beings who are following Jesus, lament is going to be part of that process because it's what teaches us to stop posing and to acknowledge the truth of where we are and what we feel in any given moment. So when we lament, we are at our most honest and vulnerable, even if that's ugly. And often it includes some level of ugliness. Number four, if we never lament, our mind, emotions, and body will find unhealthy ways of processing our pain. We might deceive ourselves from the moment in our conscious mind that we've pushed that stuff down. But you push it up long enough, it's gonna come out in mental health issues, it's gonna come out in body issues, it's gonna come out in all kinds of other ways, and we will carry that expression in unhealthy ways in our minds and in our bodies, and oftentimes, the unconscious pain that we've neglected only becomes conscious in the context of relationships where we then bring unhealthy expressions and experiences into our relationships and we become the source of toxicity because we've denied our pain and pushed it down and our body says this will not be denied. We are going to deal with this one way or another, either through lament and honesty and seeking self-care or through autoimmune issues and inexplicable outbursts of rage or sadness. And so... One of the ways that God has gifts that we've been given to, buy, to, to be rescued from that 
is to give ourselves to lament. Number five, a lamenting human is an empathetic human. A lamenting human is an empathetic human. There is something about acknowledging the power of our own suffering that empowers us to tap into the ancient wisdom of healing presence in the suffering of others. It is very difficult. All that we can do is try to imagine their pain, but when we enter into it and acknowledge our own, it gives us the power of deep connection. We have recently experienced a particular kind of pain and, and it brought up lament and questions and anger and, and disappointment. And, and one of the ways that that has been addressed and healed is few people here and there come and say, this happened to me. I just want you to know I've experienced this too. And the power of that validation and being part of that unhappy fraternity of suffering nonetheless is deeply comforting. And so another way that that's expressed in the, in the writings of Paul, he says that, is that we will comfort others with the grace with which we have been comforted. So there is something about acknowledging, lamenting, and processing our pain that emp empowers us with a grace that is a healing presence and balm to the suffering of others. Number five, lament reminds us that we are not in control. And I know that we don't like that idea, but it is critical that we challenge our self-deception in that regard, because as I've said, there has been the, the number one uh, experience that I've seen challenge people's faith is not the stuff that is written about in articles or addressed through apologists. It is the reality of thinking that a certain way of serving God means I can control an outcome of blessing and then realizing that is not the truth. So lament says, I don't like it. You don't have to like it, but it, re but it reminds us I am not in control. And number seven, lament reminds us that we are in control. And what I mean by that is we, the journey of life, especially from 20-something to 80-something, is a slow expansion of the understanding that our circle of control is much smaller than we like to think that it is. But it's not non-existent. There are things we can control. In my pain, I can control whether or not I choose to express myself with, honor, uh, with honesty and vulnerability, or if I'm gonna to choose to ignore it and suppress it. I have the power of that choice. So there are things that we are in control of. We aren't in control of the variables that cause our suffering. But with patience, we can be in control of how we begin to respond to that. And that's very important because we have to acknowledge we can respond either in healthy or in unhealthy ways. And so we do have some control in how we respond and process that. So. For well, the rest of our time, let's walk through examples on how to lament. For me, when I face lament in my own heart or if I'm sitting with the broken or if I'm sitting with the wounded, I am there and I am embodying a core conviction that is not a choice, it's not an idea. Even if I were to talk myself philosophically or theologically out of it, it still remains in my heart. I don't know how that happened other than the grace of God, but the core conviction I have is this, 
Everything is working toward deepening your communion with God and revealing to you your true spiritual identity as Abba's child. It's one of the things I could not let go of. It's one of the hills that I will die on. Everything is working toward deepening your communion with God and revealing to you your true identity, your true spiritual identity as Abba's child. So when we look at lament, what you'll see in lament is, is there are structures. Often lament is expressed in the scripture through poetry. Now again, I mentioned this when we talked about Jesus, but I want to mention it again. Lamentation in poetry is not necessarily making absolute doctrinal and theological statements. In fact, it may include statements that on a theological level we would say are false. And you're going to see some of them when we walk through the lamentations. It might mean we make statements that we feel about a certain way about the character of God that in our calmer moments we know is not indicative of his character at all. And yet, it is important to acknowledge the contradiction of the emotion. That, my friends, is not hypocrisy. That is authenticity. That is honesty. That is vulnerability. And even in Scripture, we see laments that make statements that aren't theologically accurate. And this is why, I mean, it's not that hard to wrap our heads around in history, you don't learn history by just reading sonnets. That, that's not what sonnets are for. They don't teach you history and science. They teach you what it means to be human regardless of the advances of science and technology and all of these other kinds of d- d- disciplines. So that's important to remember as we read uh, through laments. So there are a structure... If you experience lament, I am not suggesting, well, here's the proper way. Here's five steps. And uh, first, did you do this? Didn't you do that? They don't work this way. They work this way when you finally write it out in poetry. But in reality, they're moving and flowing and they're mixing up and you visit one stage and then you get past it and then it comes back again and messes up the order. But these are all elements that we find in the lamentations of Scripture. Thank you for that angelic confirmation. So here are the processes, here are the structures of lament we see in the scripture. Number one, there's an address to God, speaking out to God. Number two, there is the lament, which is the problem or the complaint. You know, all complaint is not bad. There is a healthy way to complain. And the psalmist teaches that. So there is a problem or there is a complaint. Number three, somewhere in there, there is a confession of trust. And if you read many of the Psalms of Lament or or even reading through Lamentations, oftentimes when we get to the confession of trust, it becomes kind of the emotional turning point. And in my experience, when we lament and we give vent to the more shadowy emotions in our soul, And through that process, finally, and usually we kind of get weary and tired, and it's almost like an emotional game of uncle to where we struggle and we rant and we shake our fists, and then we cry uncle, and we start to move toward a posture of surrender. And oftentimes, then we invite or return to an affirmation of our trust in the goodness of God. And when that happens, it's not only the emotional turning point in the poetry, it also tends to be 
an emotional turning point in our own personal and existential experience. Uh, then there is the prayer. It is what the psalmist wants God do, to do about it. Now, that may or may not be an appropriate request. You're not required for it to be a saintly request. You're just required to make it an honest request. Because in case you don't know, God always has the prerogative to say, I don't think I'm going to do that. Now, I hear you. You want me to take that person out, but I still love them. I have plans for them. Even if you don't, I'm not going to do that. But I'm glad you were honest about what was sitting in your heart because now it won't become a cancer to your soul. You've brought it before my presence so I can heal it, so that I can hold you as my child and say, I understand that. Now, let's walk to a place of healing so that bitterness does not become a poison to your heart. So it doesn't have to be a righteous request, but you just got to be honest about what you want God to do. Uh, and, and some of those, if you read them, it's, uh, it's interesting because it's almost like they're giving a bargain. God do this and I'll do that. Now, again, I don't think that the scripture is saying that we should live our lives by vows. I actually think vows are often made in the power of the flesh. And if we trust our vows more than we trust the Holy Spirit, it will do damage to our soul. And I've seen it happen in counseling with people time and time again. However, there is this part of us, it's, it's even part of the uh, bargaining is even part of the grief process. So sometimes there's vows. Now, I'm not saying they're always unhelpful, but I'm saying they can be, but that's for a different discussion. Nonetheless, if that's what's on your heart, this is what the psalmist does. There's some kind of vow that's attached to that prayer. After that prayer, but along with that, it's an expression of praise and oftentimes an affirmation of trust. And the affirmation of trust is not in doctrine. It is in the presence of the grace and mercy of God that transcends the, the, un, the answers that we don't always get from our doctrine or our dogma. So let's look how this is modeled in the scripture. Um, there are many Psalms of lament but I'm going to center on Psalm 142 and walk through the structure. And then we are going to end with one of the most powerful, honest, and visceral lamentations that you can find in Scripture. It's found in the book of Lamentations. Psalm 142. So we have our address, our introductory cry. With my voice, I cry out to the Lord. With my voice, I plead for mercy to the Lord. I pour out my complaint before him. I tell my trouble before him. When my spirit faints within me, you know my way. And it's interesting to hear, I've done the same thing and I hear other people's stories, uh, that lament is a crying out to God and sometimes it's humble, but sometimes it is not. Sometimes that crying out is birthed out of frustration, especially when people are bitter and they were like, I'm going to give up on God. There's no way that he could be real. And so then you go to prayer. God, I no longer believe in you. That's a beautiful hypocrisy in that statement, but it expressed the tension of the reality of the human condition. There's this heart, I need you, but I'm mad at you. And uh, yeah, again, I, I can't say that phrase without... And, and now the, the time, so much time has passed, but any fans of Robert Duvall's The Apostle? I, I thank you, a few hands, a few nods, but woefully deficient. I rebuke you, congregation. 
Uh, no, just kidding. But Robert Duvall's The Apostle is one of those films I visit over and over and over again. And, and one of my favorite scenes is when he is ranting and raving like a madman in his attic, so much so the neighbors are calling to complain and they're gonna make a noise report. And there he is embodying the anguish of the human condition saying, Lord, you know I love you, but I am mad at you. And there's something so powerful in that scene that gives us permission to enter into that space where we can both love God and trust God. And even though it may be immature, we can be angry with God and we can express that. So, so here it is, it's this cry, or maybe the cry comes from weariness. There's nowhere else to turn. You know, I you think about how honoring that must be to God, God, here I am, I'm sorry, but there was nowhere else I could go. You know, it's like getting that prom date invitation because five people already said no. And, and they were like, God's like the last minute prom date in that. But I've certainly brought that attitude. I've tried everything else. I guess I'm gonna turn to you, Lord. And so, but somehow there is that address. We cry out to God. Number two, the lament, the problem. Here's what the psalmist says. In the path where I walk, they have hidden a trap for me. Look to the right and see there is none who takes notice of me. No refuge remains to me. No cares for my soul. When you lament, you will make extreme statements that aren't completely accurate. Even in this psalm itself, when it resolves, you're going to see what he just said is not true, but it is true to how he feels. And if you are called to sit with the broken, please remember you are not obligated to correct their extreme statements. Just sit with them in silence and understand because making the extreme statements is part of the process that invites our soul to heal. And you'll see these extreme statements when you read through other Psalms of lament and when we look at lamentations as well. So there's no refuge, no one cares for me. They've hidden traps, nobody sees me. Then the confession of trust, I cry to you, O Lord, and I say, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. And what I love about giving space to express those contradictory statements is they end up leading us to the truth. Because do you notice the previous verse says, no refuge remains to me. And what does the next verse acknowledge? You are my refuge. And so there's something about acknowledging that extreme and even erroneous statement that invites us to reconsider the truth that might lead us to a deeper revelation just as it does for the psalmist. You are my refuge and you are my portion in the land of the living. Then there is the prayer. It's what the lamenter or the psalmist wants God to do about it. And he says, attend to my cry for I am brought very low. What's the request? Deliver me from my persecutors for they are too strong for me. Even in that, it's kind of like the prom date analogy. It's almost as if if I had the strength to conquer them, I would do it myself. However, they are too strong for me and I need you to intervene and to deliver me. What do you want? You know what? The first request would be, I want this to not have happened at all. That's what I want, God. And if that can't be answered, I want it to be reversed. 
I want back what I lost. We express that before God. Part of our brains knows that probably is not possible, but we express it nonetheless because it is the way we're being honest and vulnerable before the Lord. Then the reasons given to God for answering the prayer. Here it is. Bring me out of prison that I may give thanks to your name. Now, that could be a cynical statement, but I don't think it's necessary to read it cynical. It might just be, God, I am crushed by this. If you will deliver me, I will share of your deliverance. Or it may just be, God, I can't get back to the work you've called me to do because I'm so heartbroken over this experience. Heal me so that I may once again serve you with freedom and with joy. Because right now, all I have is duty and obligation. And I, I want to be delivered so that my service can be offered up in a spirit of joy and gratitude. Then there's the vow. Look at this. Or the affirmation. I shouldn't have said vow or shout of praise. I should have added the affirmation, which I, I blended the two at the end. But the righteous will surround me, for you will deal bountifully with me. And so oftentimes, we rant and we rave and we're exhausted. And then we end with, Nonetheless, you are faithful. Nonetheless, I will rest in your faithfulness and I know I will walk through this and I will stand up once again. I don't know how long it will take, but I will start to crawl and then I will walk and then I will run with you. And the more we process our lament, the more we build up a history of God's faithfulness. Till then, we rely on the support of our community. When I first came to Christ Community Church, there was a couple here, and they had served and retired from vocational ministry, Jim and Maxine Huggins, and they immediately surrounded Jen and I with their love and support. Uh, they had a bed and breakfast and would often invite us to come stay the weekend, which we gladly did. In time, they become mentors to us. Uh, Jim even, it was the first time anyone said to me, there are gonna be signs when you're burning out and you're gonna become unhealthy. Here are those signs you need to watch for. Now in my 20-something, I assumed I would never experience those. 50-year-old Artie has experienced them tenfold. But at the time, I didn't know it. Then they began to introduce us to their core friendship group. And then the privilege of privilege, one day, they had down their mentors. And they had us over. And we got to meet their mentors. And I remember, I can't even remember his name. This elder gentleman, I mean, this was 25 years ago. I just remember sitting in that inn, sitting across from him, drinking from the green St. Agnes and cups. And he looked me in the eye and he said, this is what I can tell you, son. In all my years and in all my questions, this I know to be true and I'll never forget it. I can see him looking in my eyes right now because he went a little Pentecostal on me. He said, this I know to be true. God will always be faithful. 
And he hit that table with every emphasis of the word. I can, and, and, and there have been so many times in prayer and through tears, I close my eyes and I see him sitting across from me, banging that table. God will always be faithful. And this is a saint that is saying this in the evening of his life to this young know-it-all that thought he would never be discouraged by suffering. And yet, that exchange has been a balm to my soul over and over again. So we're going to end here by looking at a powerful lamentation. And I love it because it's so full of the extremes and the emotions and the contradictions of the human experience. And it ends where all lamentation will take us if we will trust the process. Lamentations 3, 12 through 25. I didn't read the whole chapter lest we get a little overwhelmed and depressed. And so I would be cautious because lamentations will bring you down. But Jeremiah is writing. When he says he, he's talking about God. Verse 12, he strung his bow and set me as the target for his arrow. Now, do I believe that our creator who is love has a bow and arrow poised and just ready to look at his faithful people and go, let me pierce your heart. Thank you for that dramatic response. I like that. I got one down here in the, in the second row. Do I believe that's what God is like? I don't. Have I ever felt that's what God is like? You better believe it. Plenty of times. And so this is what Joshua acknowledges. He strung his bow. He set me as the target for his arrow. Listen to the visceral language here. He pierced my kidneys with shafts from his quiver. I am a laughing stock to all my people, mocked by their songs all day long. He filled me with bitterness and satiated me with wormwood. He ground my teeth with gravel and made me cower in the dust. Again, do I believe that is how God deals with us? No. Have I ever felt that's how God was dealing with me? Absolutely. And God invites those raw emotions into his presence because we are his children and he is a father with infinite wisdom that can handle it and can use it to bring healing to our souls. Verse 17, I have been deprived of peace. I have forgotten what prosperity is. Then I thought, my future is lost as well as my hope from the Lord. And now the request and the turn. Remember my affliction and my homelessness, the wormwood and the poison. I continually remember them and have become depressed. Yet, yet, I call this to mind, and therefore, I have hope. Because of the Lord's faithful love, we do not perish. Don't you love those extremes? You, you pierce my kidneys with the shafts of your arrow. 
but you are so faithful. Your love is so good. This is the reality of lament. We do not perish. Look at this. For his mercies never end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I say, the Lord is my portion. Therefore, I will put my hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the person that seeks him. It may start dark, but it ends with the most profound revelation that can ever be uttered from human lips, which regardless of what happens, I know your love is steadfast. Your mercies are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. You are my portion, and I will continue to hope in you. Another way this is beautifully expressed is another one of my favorite books of the Bible, one of the oldest books in the Bible, possibly even predates the writing of Genesis, the book of Job. And what does Job say? Though he slay me, yet I will trust him. That verse offended young Artie. It was not a very positive confession, which was the spirituality I grew up with. In fact, it was disappointing to get into the Bible and just to read how many negative confessions there are, particularly in the book of Psalms. And yet, I cannot tell you how many times I have sat at 3.30 in the morning after being up for a couple of hours and knowing I'll be up for a couple of hours still and with heaviness in my heart and tears in my eyes, I utter that prayer. Though you slay me, I will trust in you. So would you stand? And I simply want to invite you into this space as we come to the Lord's table and we get ready to take communion. Is there a lament in your heart, either for yourself or for someone you love? And will you take the courage to take that honest posture and speak your lament and speak your request. Now, luckily, we're not all in seasons of lament. Some of us are like, man, I was feeling pretty good till I came to church this morning. <laughs> no, that's all part of it too. We also validate and affirm your celebration and your rightful posture of joy and gratitude. So if that's where you are, I know you're there, but you have a past. And in that past were seasons of suffering and lament. So what are you to do this morning? Reflect and respond with gratitude. This is where I was. And I'm not lamenting in hope. I'm standing in the revelation of my lament. This is what you've done for me. Jesus, thank you. I thought I would never love again and you brought companionship into my life. I thought I might not ever hold a child in my arms and you have blessed me with this child. So either speak your complaint or take a moment to speak your gratitude in the way God's responded to your season of lament.